I was in the elevator going up to extensive care when the beeper buzzed. And I looked at the number that had beeped me and felt a touch of fear, apprehension. It was the emergency room. And I got myself together a little bit on the and elevator and, and said, go to it and pushed the different button on the elevator to the emergency room. And when I got to the room, I announced myself as the chaplain on duty. And the nurse pointed at a door. And she looked relieved to see me, like I was going to make everything better. And I asked, what's behind the door? Be prepared, they taught me in Boy Scouts a long time ago. Be prepared. And she told me that a mother and father had brought a crib dead infant in, and they were clinging to the infant's body, holding on. Could I, could I speak to them? Convince them to give up the baby. The attending asked that there was an expectation in her tone. She said, she was said, the li, li, giving up the living and was a chaplain's job. Go do it. Go do it. Go do it. The, actually, the words she used were kind of ironic. They were mocking in a loving sort of way. Go do that thing that chaplains do. Young and important residents darted about. They were doctors. They had MDs. They knew what this. They, I was new. I was just a. I, I'd been here a couple of weeks. I. I was in theological I, school. I didn't know anything. They were doctors, for gosh sake. And they were they, those. They were ambulance drivers around and nurses. They knew something about all this, didn't they? Why were they calling me? I was a student. I know how to organize a meeting, <laughs> recruit a volunteer, teach a class, say a few words on a Sunday. But this, I was not sure the nurse had mistaken me for something else, somebody else. So I went into the room. The young man and the young woman were crying. A nurse was with them. She was crying. I introduced myself and addressed the man by name, Tom. And then the woman waited for her response and acknowledged that they had brought in Toady to the hospital. And I said, he is dead. I used the D word. I expressed my sorrow, offered consoling words. The nurse handed me some paperwork and left, and she said something like, thank you, and excused herself, and relieved and ran out the door. I listened as Lillian told me the story, trying to get to the hospital in time, hoping and praying in that long trip in the car, knowing, knowing somehow that Toady was dead, denying that Toady was dead. I listened as he told me that they had been vigilant. She was, 
she, she was justifying her. He, they were justifying themselves to me, and yes, they had done everything, everything they could. And I said, I understand. You're not to blame. And I sat with them, and time passed. Time passed. Time. Slowly it passed. She cried, and we sat together in shock. Why had God done this? They had been so good. They had loved Toadie. Can't they have Toby back. Couldn't the hospital do anything? They've been vigilant. They'll be more vigilant. They'll really watch. She said she shouldn't have slept. She should have been there more awake all the time. Or maybe they would have been one of those alarms that they could have gotten somewhere. She heard about alarms. Maybe. Maybe this. Maybe. Why had God taken Toby? They had been loving parents. They had been good. They had done everything they knew. Why? They asked. They asked. They bargained with me, the chaplain, as if it was something I was in charge of. The mystery somehow that I represented, the mystery beyond my comprehending, and also beyond my controlling. And I prayed with them, and my prayers held up their goodness, their loss, their pain, their unbelief in Toby's death. And I gave voice to their anguish, and then I took a risk. I had no idea what would happen, but I expressed anger at God. I raised my voice and said the words, We are angry. Toby was love. Why? Lillian was a loving mother. Tom was a loving father. Why? I repeated slowly the 23rd Psalm. Lillian and Tom recognized it and joined me in recital. Our shepherd, you lead us beside still waters. You restore us, our souls. And then we said the prayer of Jesus together, and I guessed we should end it with the Catholic ending. Deliver us from evil. Amen. And we were quiet for again, for time. And I asked Tom if he could take Lillian home, and he said yes. And the nurse came as if she had known and took the blue body and came back in a few minutes, and Tom took Lillian, and they left. I knew Tom and Lillian for those brief moments of anguish back then, several decades ago. The emergency room paged me and wanted me to do that stuff that chaplains do, help them, let them go. They left. They went home. The body was taken by a nurse. And I remember. They remember. Remember.
Letting go takes much, much longer. I'm still sure that Tom and Lillian will never forget Toby. Isn't that what happens when we lose somebody we love? We hold on, we hold on, we hold on until the pain becomes intolerable and then we let go. And then we remember. Good grief takes place in the fullness of time. It is not rushed. There is some wisdom about how long it takes. There are all kinds of wisdom about how long it takes. But there's no schedule. And our grieving becomes remembering, and our remembering sometimes becomes grieving all over again. There's a tendency among well-meaning people to expect those in grief that they somehow should work through their sorrow, work it through in a matter of time, a month, maybe, a weeks, maybe, time, go, let, let go and move on. We express concern. I, I, we all express concern when a friend seems to go on and on and on. Maybe they need somebody. Maybe they need some help, therapist. Maybe they should be fixed. Yet, there's no timetable for grieving. And we humans are not programmed to make our remembering painless without sadness, regret, or anger. All the stages the psychologists have observed that we go through to work it out. Grieving is some of the hardest work we do. And few of us do it right. Those stubborn souls that we are, we think we should somehow do it right. We've got ceremonies to help us do it right. We have ways and books of condolence to help us do it right. When I lost my father, it was hard. Took some time to be alone, went to the beach where I had done clams with him when I was 12. Dug clams up and I remember being 12, digging clams there. My father died full of vinegar and spice, so to speak. He'd always been able to complain, share his pain, to curse, to ask God's damnation on what bothered him sort of in charge of the hellfire. It seemed to improve his aim as he got older, too. He really <laughs> My mother, however, on the, had been absent for years. She, the dementia, they call it. And she slipped away into her own world and did not recognize me when I stood before her. She would talk about me to my face, talk about me to my face. Clyde, he was such a nice boy. <laughs> Grieving for her was so different. I'd been closer to my mother, so much closer to my mother, be able to talk with her. But in dying, my father's death made more sense. 
There was anger, there was pain, there was grieving, there was sorrow, yes, but at least he was there and I was there and saying goodbye to someone who was absent is harder. Letting go was harder. Remembering was harder. Images of dementia and absence, the time schedule of grieving and letting go and remembering was itself lost. Now I'm more at peace with being my father's son than at any time in my life. I used to want to change my first name. I was so angry with my father. Letting go of my mother is, was, has never been completed, however anticipated, however expected, and however much it was a blessed relief. My late spouse, Marjorie, died of cancer. We fought the good fight. We were both Unitarian Universalist ministers. We were surrounded by the love of congregation, our congregation and the congregations across the continent. I got so many pieces of communication. In those days, it was already the internet, so it was communication would come in pretty quick. The public love, the public support for Marjorie in her struggle buoyed us, gave us support, and at the same time was demanding. It was work. Keeping up with supporting thousands of Unitarian Universalists is hard sometimes. I couldn't just go inside myself and be alone. I had people writing me and wanting a response. And, and then my co-religionist told me what a saint Marjorie was. What a hero I was. And in that I experienced a profound loneliness. Were we actually known as real people? Or the fragile human beings that we were, or we, were we some roles? Grief is a universal experience of humans. Part of being a person, a fully relating person, loves and a lover, a lover must lose their beloved. There are no exceptions. To know how deeply is part of to love deeply, to know deeply is part of being human, and all relationships must come to an end. And still grief is so painful, so disruptive of our sense of self that sometimes we would avoid it, even though we know grief avoided can become bad grief. Yes, good grief is not an oxymoron when we consider the alternative. The repression of feelings, the displaced anger, the blaming, the thinking we should have done it differently somehow. All our thoughts of anguish can be expressed in the grieving and can be given their day in court, can be worked out 
in the saying goodbye, in the rituals invented for us, if not worked out, repressed and denied, transferred to another, it can go on and on and distort our lives. When someone is lamenting, sorrowing figuratively, and even tearing their garments to observe their pain and to say, that is a sign of healing, seems so absurd, absurd seems so cruel even to say that's, a, that's what it looks, healing looks like. All that baseless guilt, all that objectiveless rage, all that disabling loneliness, feelings of insanity, depression, we want the symptoms to go away. To even suggest these are agonies of healing is to risk appearing that you're not empathetic, that you're less than compassionate. It hurts. Make it go away. You feel like you must not be sane. The anger, the guilt, the self-doubt, the lack of control are intense, and it's not comforting to be told, we're mortals. We live and we will die. And this is the way we are hardwired, that our human cells in is experiencing a loss. Our pain is a pain that has been known, known, known for a thousand generations. And will be known for generations yet to come. But such are not words of comfort. Such are words seem so cold it hurts make it go away. Yet the pain of grief is the pain of healing, much like the heat and sweats of a fever are the body's response to an infection. Characteristic of healing. Anguish is a manifestation of healing, comforting or not, that's a human truth. And it's the truth that leads us to freedom. At some point, at some point, we're going to experience a turn in the road. An appetite will return. Memories will come without our waves of sadness. Waves, it really is. If I remember right, yes, waves. I just like that. In the feeling of being overwhelmed with loss, the disarray of our lives will cease to horrify us. It will slowly become more manageable, and we will still remember on random days, on special days, when we go to a special place. And deep in the night, we will still remember. Having experienced the loss, we will experience the loss again. Yet each death confronts us anew and we cry, and we grieve, and we remember. 